You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 74, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun, informative format through expert analysis. In today's episode, I know it's been a little bit of a delay, is just me. And we're going to talk about the year in review, sort of where the state of medicine is and healthcare system is the United States. Favorable trends, unfavorable trends, things to worry about, things not to worry about. And so I just think it's a nice potpourri, which I think is a good way to start off the new year, 2020, which is the year of the ophthalmologist. But before we get started, I'd like to thank everyone who's been involved in the show, former guests, uh, obviously my wife who's supported me throughout this entire process. I'd like to thank the patron supporters at patreon.com slash the paradox. Your financial support has been very much appreciated. It helps pay for the show, helps justify my time and effort. Also, all the kind notes people send me, the people who walk up to me in the hall and talk about listening to the show and the tweets and things I get on social media. I appreciate all of those. And I hope it's been as informative to you, for you as it has been for me. I've learned a ton doing the show, far more than I expected. I think I initially envisioned the show as being more of a lecture or educational for those who are listening. And as with any sort of educational venture, and you'll talk to anyone who teaches or does instruction, and certainly if you are in any way involved in teaching people things, you quickly find out that you end up learning as much, if not more, than from either your students or from just preparing for the material and just trying to get prepared for the, the show or the whatever it is you're going to be teaching. And so it has been that for me, and I again, I hope it's been that way for you, and that will continue to be. And I would appreciate any sort of feedback, certainly reviews on iTunes or whatever the podcast player you use is greatly appreciated. Five stars, obviously, uh, my preference. But really, the written views are very helpful. Sending me notes at the Paradox Show at protonmail.com. It's a way you can get show ideas for me, people you think I should interview, things, topics we should cover that maybe we haven't covered or maybe need to go in more depth or maybe a different perspective. These are all things I appreciate. Uh, sometimes it's a little hard knowing what to talk about because there's so much going on in medicine. And then at times you feel like I've gone over things a few too many times and I want to try to continue having a fresh look at topics, certainly new things that are, are coming up in in the news or various things on new, new trends in healthcare. And so, again, if you find something that you'd like me to comment on or look into, I'd be more than happy to look into that and, and find people. So I'm, my intention is to keep this episode short-ish, and we'll see how well I do with that. Every time I say that in my head, I end up going about the full-length episode, so... We'll see how this one goes. I want to start to first with the the bad or the things that are concerning with healthcare, the trends that are going on that I think you're aware of, but I think it's good to sort of put them out there and sort of revisit them because some we haven't talked about in the show for quite a while. I'd like to start with maintenance certification. 
haven't had this discussion for quite a while on the show because there hasn't been a lot of movement in the in the issue and the um but main certification there once you get your initial certification board certification through the American uh Board of Medical Societies you have your various society boards mine's the ABA which is the American Board of Anesthesiology there's the ABIM which is the American Board of Internal Medicine and there's the American Board of Pediatrics etc you get your certification and it's good for 10 years and so you pass your tests, you complete your residency, you may have an oral exam, maybe you have some case reviews, sort of depends on the specialty and what they do, and then you have this maintaining certification. And so it's a continual testing process or certification some way, and every specialty does differently. Some require extra modules, meaning you do extra, we'll call it busy work, but it could be uh, research projects and things like that. And so it's a way of forcing people who are in specialties to do additional work to prove their competency, to improve the scientific knowledge base, I guess, of the specialty, um, and to make sure that we have people who are competent and who know what they're doing. The knock against these things, of course, is what you'd expect, is that it's hard to prove that any of them are effective, that it actually improves anyone's ability to provide care for their patients. And then as soon as you have something embedded, especially that's required, and so, you know, you can't practice for the most part as a physician without board certification. There are uh, ability to do that. But for the most part, it is very difficult, especially if you have any sort of hospital-based credentialing process, to not have this main board give the green light for your hospital uh, to provide privileges for you, so for you to practice. And also, insurance companies frequently use this as a criteria for allowing their patients to to see you. I, I guess their customers, not patients, but their, their customers, their policyholders, to see that physician. And it, and it just makes it easier for the hospital to try and weed out people who are suspicious characters for the most part. And that's, you know, that's, the, that's sort of the theory behind it. What weight means certification has increasingly become is it has become embedded within these medical societies' boards that are these quasi-public-private organizations, which means they have essentially the role of and the power of a regulatory body that controls your future, and you have very little say into what they do, uh, and there's no recourse, there's no one you can elect, there's no one who's appointed to this that you can actually you know, file complaints with or really do anything. People on the boards will say there's always a, a grievance policy and, and uh, procedures, and there's no question there is, but it's not realistic for you to say, well, this, the way this society is verifying certification is wrong, and I want to you know, have a competing one or I want to do it differently. It is very much like the state in the sense that there's no alternative. And so it forces people into a 10-year cycle. You pay a lot of money. You spend a lot of time. And oftentimes a lot of the activities are ones that are not focused towards what your practice is. So you may be a specialist of some sort, and you don't need to know the, the other specialties or subspecialties within your specialty. For instance, if you are someone who specializes in vitro-retinal surgery, you don't need to know all the corneal stuff. I mean, you or you maybe don't need to know neuro-ophthalmology. And there are all sorts of different uh, subspecialties that you need to know far more knowledge about and others you need to know in zero uh, for practice. If you have a general practice, obviously you have no general stuff. But there is this problem that it is very general sort of process in the credentialing. And there's a tremendous financial incentive for these organizations to 
provide that material to require it and then to make you purchase it. And, and this has become a real problem. <laughs> As you'd expect, there's a lot of corruption that's been well-documented within the internal medicine board. Uh, and yet, despite this, they sort of persist and, and go on, which is a quarter of the physicians in this country were uh, internal medicine trained. So they have to pay a lot of money, offshore accounts, they've bought real estate, there's uh, all sorts of problems with, you know, pays seven figures for these people who run these organizations, who are physicians, but they've sort of left the physician field, I would say, they don't see patients anymore. And, you know, how well do they know what's going on within the actual specialty itself? And you're not allowed to have as much deviation and able to subspecialize as easily. Although I guess you'd say you can still subspecialize, but now if I want to do my continuing education and things that matter to me, I have to do it in addition to this stuff that doesn't matter. So it's a greater expense. It creates obviously more burnout. It's more paperwork, more busy work, especially doing research projects. It's a tr it's a gigantic moneymaker. And the real problem now is initially you could use your your specialty societies that were separate from these boards. And so I could just give you an example of the anesthesiologists. There's the American Society of Anesthesiologists, and that's the organization that will put out practice guidelines and advocate for the profession. It goes into, um, all, has all sorts of different subsets into pain and uh, outpatient surgery, safety issues. And so they'll issue all sorts of expert analysis, and they're involved in the educational, the practice management. And they would also provide continued medical education. There are all kinds of places to get your continued medical education. But now if you have ones that are approved for the certification or the MOC process, maintenance certification, now those are worth those are more valuable. And there's a huge incentive for the society to to put out that stuff that for, that people will now feel obligated to buy. Because if you're going to buy something, you're going to buy the one that's going to get you the MOC because that's what's going to let you practice medicine, whether it's helpful to you or not. And by doing this, it has given created a sort of perverse incentive for these medical, medical societies, especially societies, to be supportive of a process that is almost, you could say, universally despised by most practicing physicians. I would say probably upwards about 90% of physicians are not in favor of the maintenance certification by any sort of measure. There are those who are involved in the process of writing questions, giving speeches, whatever, who financially are incentivized to be supportive of MOC. But outside of those very few practicing physicians, certainly those in private practice are in support of MOC. Uh, most physicians just kind of take it, suck it up and take it, and then just think, uh, count the days that they can no longer do MOC. And it's a, real just, it's a real problem with the industry, obviously, because it encourages people to quit practicing and people who are probably quitting earlier than they would ordinarily because of this busy work. And it's just, it's a, it's a huge turnoff to the profession and it's not very helpful. And it's, I think, introduced a lot of potential corruption, which we've seen in certain medical societies. I'm not saying all of them. But certainly when you look at the internal medicine, I don't think there's any question. Uh, again, well-documented Newsweek and uh, by a number of pioneers championing and sort of doing these deep audits of the sort of the nonprofit sort of corruption of these organizations. There was a... I know when I had an episode earlier, I believe it was this year, where we talked to Dr. Uh, Wes Fisher. There was a lawsuit that was brought forth by a number of physicians toward, against the American Board of Internal Medicine, basically saying it's, there's a collusion in the sense that physicians are forced to be part of this organization, and they have no alternative, and, and they're you know, 
funneling funds uh, to all these nefarious people. And uh, whether it's the testing organizations or it's buying real estate, uh, there's offshore accounts, there's all kinds of sort of funny business going on. And it's hard to know really what's going on with the, the, medic, the money that's being raised. And there's just huge salaries that are being raised for these nonprofits um, where you're getting people who are in a profession where the average physician may earn, I don't know, let's just say 200 some thousand dollars or so. And these people are coming down with um, seven-figure uh, salaries. And then a number of people on the board, again, with high six or seven figures as well. It's And it and there's no benefit that most of the physicians are seeing to this whole process except to being treated like criminals in this sort of testing process. Uh, so there was a lawsuit, and as is often the case, the it's hard to prove standing. And if you know anything about the law, you have to prove that you were that you were forced to buy something or do something, and that you were harmed by it. And so to prove that you have standing to actually challenge challenge the court of law, it's an expensive process. There's been a lot of money raised, and the the lawsuits were dismissed that were challenging this. Previously, the American Board of uh, osteopathic medicine, which are the DOs you may see, uh, they were successful in blocking uh, forced joining of the American uh, Osteopathic Association so in order to maintain your certification. But the other parts of, uh, for the allopathic physicians, the MDs, they were unsuccessful so far in getting this. Now, there's still a number of people who are suing their various boards. And I think the radiologists are doing it. Uh, and I think there are two other boards I can't think of at this time, but they're suing them right now in court, and so we'll see if they can uh, get standing. But this is a very difficult battle, and it's one that's been very discouraging because the only way to really stop this is to use state law. And where state laws have been passed, it actually has not been proven to be uh, entirely effective for the very reasons that it's not effective in the court. You can have laws saying that you're, they force you to, they're not allowed to use your certification, as a means of determining whether you can practice in a hospital, like with privileging, uh, with licensure, or with the state, or with the insurance companies and get payment. And so insurance companies will oftentimes use other means and say, well, yes, you don't have to be a member of, you don't have to be certif board certified to practice within our network, but it ha you have to be part of an accountable care organization. And oh, by the way, in order to be an accountable care organization that can get maximum reimbursement, you have to fulfill certain national measures, like, and they're called HEDIS. And, oh, by the way, the HEDIS is one of the ways you get higher scores is if you have people who are board certified. <laughs> so you can effectively force board certification through the same process, even though you're not, because you will, you can cut someone's pay by 30, 40% or whatever, and then there's no, there's no way you can make a living in these organizations, generally speaking, unless you, and certainly you can't be competitive in finding anyone to work for you unless you are uh, part of this part of this process and so there are many ways of sort of forcing even though you may have state legislation saying you don't you don't require it you still have it required because you have a lot of uh, most payments is third-party payer most payments are in some way uh, scored based on when large insurance company measures or even national measures and those will oftentimes been somehow include board certification so as long as those are there you know the board certification people will always be will always win and so that's certainly a negative, uh, negative sort of development. The next big discussion, obviously, the big gorilla in the room when it comes to the United States in discussing healthcare, is sort of the general healthcare system. And when you look at how it's working out in the Democratic presidential election, there's a lot of move towards a single payer system or central planning from the federal government in D.C. And despite the fact that 
there's very little in our country, in our economy that is controlled from D.C. as far as giant aspects of our economy or the way we live. It seems to be a lot of momentum in this. How you pay for it, those considerations are not really being made because the cost, if you have any sort of system like we do now, an equivalent sort of coverage is astronomical in the amount of uh, the amount of revenue that be acquired either through debt or through taxation is between 30 40 trillion dollars over 10 years so you know extra 3 or 4 trillion dollars which is virtually doubling the US budget i mean you look at the US budget right now it's 4.8 trillion dollars collecting about 3.6 trillion dollars in revenue leaving a deficit of you know over 1 trillion dollars but you can only imagine by adding an extra 3 trillion dollars in expenses to have that much additional debt growing $4 trillion a year, you obviously have to have a significant change in taxation and you know the way we pay for things. You can't have that much debt, I wouldn't think, or at least it wouldn't be very sustainable. And I think there are people who say, oh, there's you know cost savings by having it efficient and having a single payer and having the government plan things. I have yet to see a government program that is comes in under budget or even close to it. Uh, they rarely save money. I think you can by dr- drastically cutting options, by cutting uh, services provided, and cutting pay and things like that, I suppose. But generally, even government workers don't really work for a lot less money. And so it's hard to imagine that you could hire every single nurse and every single physician and find that you're saving money on compensation. I don't think you probably have less administrators in a system like that. I mean, we have a tremendous amount of hospital administrators. If you look at the growth of hospital administrations in the last uh, 20 years, uh, it's or even probably 30 or 40 years when you look at the, the graphs, it's really uh, it's been way higher than what you get in the amount of physician growth. And uh, it's just it's hard for, to imagine that this is a really serious policy proposal. Aside from people thinking, yeah, it'd be great to have you know free health care as long as they don't have to pay for it. And that's the problem because you do ultimately have to pay for it because people aren't going to provide services for free. Um, and the biggest problem really right now is that there's no counter proposal. There's no one advocating for any sort of, seriously, any sort of free market solution or market solution in any way, really. Uh, if the best you see is people saying, well, Obamacare is terrible, we need to get rid of it. But if you leave, get rid of Obamacare and go back to where you were before it, it was really still a mess. I mean, that's why there was so much political pressure to pass Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. And so I don't see how anybody right now is making a very good case for solutions. I think we've talked about a lot of them on this show, and and that would be, I would say, encouraging. But from a national policy and people coming down and saying, you know, the solution is not a central planning, it's less planning, you don't see anyone with a serious voice who's making that point. I, I would hope that it would come. I don't trust our current president. He seems very much enamored with government power from many things. And so I don't I don't really believe that he's genuine when he says he wants to, um, you know, dismantle the ACA, for instance. I mean, I think that's like the extent of it. But he'd be very happy to replace it with something that looks exactly the same and just call it Trump care. And I think that's you can see this with sort of a lot of the tra- trade policies, too, that we dismantle them and basically pass the exact same thing. But now it's you know its own. But we haven't really fundamentally changed a lot of what we're doing is from a government standpoint. So I get worried that there's not a, a serious voice on this, uh, that at least it gets enough attention. I'm hoping at some point that we will. 
the other thing, of course, that trend that continues is consolidation of medical practices and the gobbling up of private practices by health systems. On some level, it is probably a good thing that you have potentially inefficient systems or you have a ability to coordinate care through larger networks of primary care physicians and specialists. On the other hand, by limiting choices and by having uh, everyone streamlined in some way, it really actually causes a, probably a problem with phys- patients' ability to find the care they want, uh, get, the, get the care they, can, they want, and for physicians to control any part of the process, which is sort of what patients in many ways want. I think my impression is for patients, they want their physician to maybe not make the decisions for them, but to be able to provide adequate choices. And when they're locked into networks, uh, either through a medical group uh, or through uh, consolidated of insurance companies, uh, narrow networks, this is a real problem. And, I, and I'm not sure there's an easy solution out of it at this point. But anyway, that trend continues. And that's one that's, I think, probably one that we, in the United States, we generally favor more choices and more options, and we're getting less. And so that's probably on its face, not a good thing. Another thing that's happened that has been concerning is the physicians just in general being sort of beaten on by the public, by the press, and by politicians. I mean, in some ways, that's not any, not any new. I'm, I think more politicians and people who are in office are lawyers by training. There's sort of a professional sort of rivalry of sorts that continues on once you become a legislator. But I think there's been a lot of legislation that has put a lot of a blame on physicians for problems that exist within the system that, yes, physicians are to blame for a number of things that happen in medical medical system. The fact that our system is the way it is, the encouragement of using a third-party payer system. I mean, all these things were seen by many physicians as a way of getting around lots of problems or having either getting payment or restricting access to practicing medicine by people who are lesser trained. But it also causes a lot of problems when it comes to the recognition that there are pro- problems, and then the only one who's there, left standing there, it must be the physicians who cause it. And I'll give one example. When you look at the opioid crisis, first of all, I just like to say that as an anesthesiologist, it's nice for people to use the word opioid. We always we used to use the word narcotics, and so you'd ask patients to use narcotics because uh, because opioids, no one knew what that was. Uh, now, obviously, it's well known, and narcotics just means something illegal. So, so some people that use narcotics, it never was it never very helpful uh, as it is now. Anyway, uh, the opioid epidemic is a problem because you know people obviously now have restricted access to pain medications. You're seeing uh, things tighten up within the states and the federal government, and the prescriptions, the the writing of prescriptions for pain medications has gone down significantly. And this is without any legislation; is mainly with the threat of problems and also just a recognition from physicians and you know the way we were being trained and I'll include myself in this in the 2000s and 90s is that we weren't prescribing enough pain medication and that the the pain was a fifth vital sign in a and it's something that we just weren't addressing adequately and it and no question people in pain not only is it suffering which is sort of the whole point of being a medicine to to limit and help people who are suffering but also it causes undue health problems Significant amounts of pain causes problems with stress in the in body, and there's no question that it causes long-lasting effects. Not only from a socio-economic standpoint, you know, people can't work, they can't do, be active, and you know, it helps them. It hurts them psychologically, emotionally, uh, 
but it also causes actual physiologic changes and problems with the body. And so treating pain is important. Now, how we treat pain, I think it's, it's evolving, and I think it's still getting better, and I think it's going to improve even more the next uh, next 10 to 15, 20 years. Certainly, as new pharmaceuticals come across that use less opioids, I think there's no question that opioids are necessary, but probably the way we're using them is different than before. And the recognition that using things that are weak or we thought were kind of useless, like, say, Tylenol, but using it in combination with that with uh, another class of pain medications like Neurontin and then another class and then maybe you know, muscle relaxant, and then use the opioids on top of it, you can, you can sort of have five different things working synergistically to create the same, a better result, probably with less side effect profile and less risk for addiction and, and, um, and dependence. And so there's a lot of blame that's passed on to physicians. And I think rightly so in some level, uh, but it was also, I think a lot is, is being blamed on physicians. That's probably not their fault and blaming people for, people getting hooked on on opioids is probably not fair because I think a lot of it, although there are some people, there are a number of people who got their first exposure while they were on uh, having surgery, a lot of these people are people who are risk takers and are going to be addicted to something anyway. And I don't mean to blame the patient and that's exactly what that came off of, but I think it's important to look at, um, you know these people in your life, they tend to be riskier and they have tendencies to look for substances to alt- mind alt- alter themselves and whether they're using marijuana, whether they're using opioids, whether they're using methamphetamines, alcohol, cigarettes, whatever. I mean, there's that sort of level that people are going to be involved in using these sort of substances. And so I think it's a little unfair to say that because they were being prescribed these things that that's what the cause of it. I, I do agree that there is some level of that and there are people who are inappropriately and knowingly inappropriately prescribing these medications. But to to cause this fear with amongst physicians to throw them in jail, to take away their licenses, is the wrong way to, to go about fixing this problem because I think the problem has been recognized now and I think people have corrected their practices and they're continuing to, as they're getting better medications, alter their way of treating pain. But it's a lot, causing a lot of undue suffering with amongst patients. And now people who are who are addicted and who do need the opioids to get by, uh, they're they're finding the only way they can get it is through the black market. They have like through heroin or fentanyl formulations that they get on the street, and now they're the overdose deaths are, I think, still continue to climb. I'm not sure about those last year. I don't know the, I'm sure the numbers aren't out yet, but the deaths continue to to increase despite the decrease in the prescriptions. And so I think you can say the prescriptions are not the problem. Uh, it's the fact that we have now people who are going to the street to get their medications and the formulation, the actual amount uh, of opioid that's in, included in the dosing is is not reliable, and so you can easily overdose. And you know, use other things to try and treat your pain as well, some alcohol or whatever, and then you mix it with some opioids and you suddenly get into big trouble. So... Anyway, I think the opioid thing and the demonization of physicians is causing the problems of causing the price increases, or, or especially recently, it seems like there's been a big push towards uh, cutting physician pay, which is fine. You can do that, but you have to recognize that you're you're actually affecting a very, very small portion of healthcare expenses. Uh, I think you're talking like just one or two, maybe even three percent. Even if you cut all health all physician pay by half, I think you only affect affect healthcare costs by like one or two percent. So you're not really fixing the problem. I mean, you can. It doesn't mean you're not addressing it a little bit, but if your premium went down one or two percent, but you lost half your physicians, I don't know that you're in any better spot. I think 
without a doubt, you'd be in a lot worse spot uh, to have people who with less training taking care of you as the primary uh, caregivers. So uh, that's the other thing. And finally, I guess I would say is out-of-network billing has become a thing too. And this goes a little bit along the lines of the physician demonization. Most physicians are now, I think it's over 50%, are now part of a network or are employed on some level. And so a lot of what they do and the way the actions they take are policies from their employer. Uh, how you refer, how you, uh, how you bill, and how you have to practice is in many ways dictated or at least influenced significantly by your employer. And so you can blame physicians for the way they practice and the way the decisions they're making, but sometimes their decision-making is not within their control or it's, not, it's heavily influenced by their employer. And I'll just give you an example. If you are in a large multi-specialty uh, physician group uh, where you have primary care specialists, your incentive is, is to refer within your organization. I mean, it makes sense, right? You would refer to the, the if you're a family practice physician, you're going to refer to the ENT who is in your group for some kid who needs tonsil, uh, tonsils out. And, and there's also, most of these groups have their own imaging, they have their own laboratories. And the more you refer within the organization, because we're not being paid on value, meaning you know, my visit's going to cost this much money to treat whatever. Instead, it, there's volume. And so the more stuff you have ordered, the more stuff that you have done, the better your numbers look and the more revenue you're bringing to the organization. And so there is a, a problem sometimes disconnect from the physician and, uh, the, and the patient. Now, you could argue, too, that if you are a private practice physician and you have your own x-ray machine, you're much more likely to take x-rays of people. You're much more likely to get laboratories if you own the lab across the street. And so there's no question that these things are, these incentives and uh, exist within the organization, with any way you structure your, your, your healthcare system and the way you deliver care. But it's just more prevalent within these organizations. And so I think then you see the issue with out-of-network billing, which is essentially people who have a certain provider, uh, healthcare provider that is allowed with their insurance company, but you go to the hospital and it turns out that this person's actually the provider, let's say the, the physician for whatever, the specialist, doesn't actually accept that insurance. You don't know this because you know, well, I can go to Hospital X, so you go to Hospital X because you know that's covered by your insurance company, but they, for whatever reason, don't cover that physician. And now uh, there's a charge placed for the services, and your insurance company said, well, that's they weren't in our network, and so we only think they should charge this much. The physician group says you sh we should make this much, as so it makes for everybody else, and there's a dispute, and all the extra goes to the patient, and so they get this what's considered like a surprise surprise bill because you were expecting that most of it would be covered and now it turns out you've got a bill for you know $20,000 and you thought it'd be a lot less than that. And so the solution is oftentimes, well, just we'll let the insurance company decide what it should be and then that just have to accept that. This causes all kinds of problems. I mean, obviously, because you provide all the leverage to the insurance companies who, you know, will prevent the patient from seeing a lot of that bill, but they can set rates now for all physicians, either both in-network, because if I can say, well, I can provide set the prices for out-of-network, well, I've essentially said I can set prices for in-network because I can just threaten to say, oh, you're no longer in-network, and now you have to accept these prices 
because you know what the out-of-network prices that are dictated by law to be. So uh, essentially, you're giving all the power to the insurance companies, and I don't think there's a lot of people who are fans of insurance companies anymore than they are probably of large health systems, et cetera. Uh, so you're kind of, you're kind of a not helping yourself, and you're, what that does is by driving down the, the reimbursement rates, it's going to drive down the compensation, and your hospital system or your medical group or your state is going to be less competitive in finding professionals who are going to work for a certain rate. Uh, you know, there's a market rate for anything, and it varies by geographically, by the desirability of the city or the state. Uh, and then if you suddenly make it so it's harder to earn in money, it's hard to say to someone that you should come here and work for 20% less. And, you know, it's even though it's, the weather's exactly the same and your taxes rates are higher or something. I mean, you've got to have, it's a combination of all the sorts of things why someone settles in a certain area. But by making the compensation less for everybody, it's going to hurt. And I think, you know, you're seeing that now in California in network reimbursement rates have gone down. I don't think you've seen any sort of savings pass on to, to the patients. And so anyway, I think that's a real problem, but it's one that I think is being addressed by the state level. And so that's some of the good news. I think that you're seeing state medical societies argue that we have, we need people to fix this. And I talked about this in a few episodes ago. And so now I want to talk about things to be hopeful. I think positive developments that are coming. There are a lot of people fighting these, um, these MOC laws. And so when we talked about certification earlier, it was sort of down, but there are people who are still fighting this. Dr. Fisher is a great advocate for this. He's helping spearhead a number of lawsuits against the ABIM and the radiologists. And there are a lot of statewide efforts to change the laws. And it's just a long, it's just a difficult battle. But I think there's a lot of resistance within physicians. And I'm, my hope is that it will continue and that we continue to persist against this and try and offer alternative boards like the National Board of Physicians and Surgeons, which uh, hopefully more certain more hospitals and insurance companies will accept as an alternative to the traditional board certification, and which will allow more options for patients and for physicians. And so there'll be, I think, less problems with doing a lot of busy work and a lot of stuff that's not helpful to your patient care. Certificate of need laws, uh, I've shared on a couple episodes on, are really under attack. And I think they're they're losing there are 35 states that have them right now, including the District of Columbia. So that means 15 states are without certificate of need laws. I don't think you probably would know which 15 of those states are. And so I think that tells you how effective and useful those certificate of need laws are. So I think, you know, every state's working on getting rid of those. I know here in the state of Michigan, we're getting rid of a number of them. I think hopefully they'll be gone by the end of next year. And you sort of chip away at those. And there's definitely those some lawsuits against them for restriction of 14th Amendment, you know, ability to practice your trade and economic freedom. And I think those are those have had some initial victories, both in North Carolina, and I think there's another one in, in Iowa, but the North Carolina one I know made it uh, through the first round and through the appeals court. So I think there's some hope here that we'll get some movement and getting rid of some of these sort of knee laws, which are essentially uh, ways of colluding to prevent competitors from entering the market. So if you are running a bunch of MRI scanners, yeah, you don't want a competitor to come in and, and open three MRI scanners in your town. So you say, well, you go to the, the board and, oh, by the way, uh, you have the MRI scanners and you also have someone on that board who decides whether other people can come in and compete. So, I mean, obviously, it's there's a lot of collusion there. There's a lot of, <laughs> it's a way of, it's an anti-competitive practice. The thought was is that if we have too many people with MRI scanners because they're limited resources, we're going to have, we're going to have people go out of business and, you know, I, I, it's hard to actually make that economic argument now, but it's something that was in place in the 1970s and 60s with the uh, initial Medicare expansion uh, passage 
they thought they had to ration resources. And so it's sort of a central planning process. And you see where you have more option, options and opportunities to go to surgical centers and MRI scanners, psychiatric beds. I mean, all these things are certificate of need laws just on various levels at, in various states. And so the, the more we can eliminate these, and we are slowly winning that, and we're limiting more than, and there aren't any additional CON laws being added. So that's a very good thing, and I think very positive and worth celebrating. Physicians also on social media are really fighting back. And I think, you know, there was a paucity of physicians who were on social media who were defending themselves and that's just not the case anymore. You can find them on Twitter. You can find them on Facebook. There are groups really working to help uh, highlight what physicians are doing. And I think in addition to that, I think physicians are finding innovative ways to, if not make money, find alternative ways of getting their message out there, you know, through like podcasts, like the paradox, but uh, through blogs, through uh, Instagram, Snapchat, I don't know, all those social media things, but you definitely see a lot more activity within physicians. I mean, I would argue that not all of the voices are great because some of them advocate for things I don't agree with, but they're present. And so now we're not having just the, um, the administrators, the hospital people, the insurance people and the uh, pharmaceutical companies having all the arguments or just the, say the president of the AMA. We have all sorts of different individuals who have an opportunity to get their voice out there. And I think it's real important because it, the democratization of our voices lends to a better support for I think better policies and and allow to more reflection on what is best and and not to think that there's a central authority that's really going to come up with the best solutions and ideas. And so I think it's real important that we've had this new change in social media. And I think that's for all the down and negative things we say about social media. I think it has been very positive in the sense that it is a, we're able to get our voices out there a lot more effectively than you may be getting a letter to the editor or you know a op-ed or something in a newspaper. Transparency and pricing, I think, has been really important, too. I talked about it with Dr. Eskew that probably a lot of this transparency won't make a huge difference, but it might. Uh, I think just the trend is probably a, a positive, as long as you don't expect it to be a panacea and to fix everything, because ultimately it, the whole payment structure is what sort of kind of uh, mucks things up in, med in medical care. But if we can have more transparency and more uh, reasonable expectations by the patient and sort of what they're their cost of their care is going to be, I should say the price, the cost is still, you know, enigma. Uh, it, it'll allow for better competition, better probably services and, and probably improved quality of care. Ultimately, it will challenge the number of organizations. It will probably cause them to close. It'll certainly cause people to have different ways of of pricing things, and maybe it's just going to cause uh, people to hide their costs in other places, and, and I, I'm not sure. But I do think overall, if we have more transparency, we have more ability to know, recognize what the, the price is of what you're getting, uh, it's going to be better for, for everybody. I mean, we wouldn't expect, we expect that in every other part of the economy. There's no reason why it'd be different in healthcare. I think you also know the positive thing you start to see in the Physician, the physicians and just the public in general questioning the use of middlemen. Now, middlemen are very important in the economy, advanced economy. They help coordinate resources moving from here and there. You need to have warehouses, for instance, to store your supplies. You can't always get things directly from the manufacturer. That is changing, though. Uh, and I wonder at some level if the, the necessity of having a group purchasing organization, a GPO, or a pharmacy benefit manager, PBM, 
is as necessary as it used to be. And I, I wonder if having a formularies and things like that are, are things that are more a relic of the past uh, than they are something that we need today. And I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that people are questioning how they get to make their money. And because most of the time they make their money not by providing true service, but through kickbacks uh, and rebates and and sort of concessions they get from pharmaceutical companies or supply uh, companies, and they don't pass a lot of those savings on to the hospitals, the pharmaceuticals, or the patients. And so, I think the more we question that, unfortunately, they are very deep pockets from a lobbying standpoint. And so that's the challenge. But they are somewhat of a relic, and I don't know if it's if they would not be a very effective or useful if they were, if there were less, or if there were more uh, hospital organizations and networks, or if there were less. And I, I tend to think that just because of the way we have our system set up, it, it, and the fact that we have a third party payer system, that it probably encourages the, the use of more middlemen. But there's no reason that you couldn't have PBMs and GPOs that provide better prices and cost savings for their um, for their hospitals and pharmacies. And I and I tend to think that's going to be start happening, that people are starting to question how they've been making all their money and they try and shrine it through law and regulation. But I think that's going to start crumbling away. And I think hospitals are going to push back against having to pay for these exorbitant fees on these with these group purchasing organizations. And they're going to start looking at possibly either There'll be a competitive one that can that can outprice uh, these the current GPOs, or there's just people are just going to start buying directly from the manufacturers with more for more and more products, which I think is probably the way things are going to go more than anything. And pharmaceutical companies will find that they don't need to be on these formularies as often, and um, so I tend to think that that's probably the way things will go. I don't know how long that'll take, but I think that's the that's one encouragement development. Finally, I think what What's really great about the show that I've found is that I've talked to so many people who are doing innovative things within the healthcare sector, whether they're physicians or uh, just entrepreneurs or physician entrepreneurs who are starting their own businesses or they're finding alternative ways of providing care for patients, providing quality products, providing services that work better for patients and for physicians. I think, you know, you look at direct primary care, there's no question this is a scalable product. This is one that I think will be, is very advantageous to the patients. It's very helpful for the, for the um, physicians too. And it's one that helps, I think, a lot of ways avoid a lot of this burnout. It's not going to be a panacea. It's not going to fix everything. I think the more direct care you're seeing these provided by specialists as well as a good development, independent surgical centers, independent freestanding emergency rooms, urgent care clinics, uh, there's a lot of movement in people finding ways to just chipping away at the edges. And I think, you know, if you're a hospital, you may say, well, this is not fair because they're taking all the good business and they're leaving us with the terrible business. And there's no question because you still need the super complicated, high-tech, labor capital-intensive projects that you have at the hospitals. You can't do a liver transplant, for instance, at just any place. I mean, there there's a certain amount of cost to, all, to that and the amount of sophisticated equipment and knowledge and technical, you know, know-how you have to have is really, it's pretty tremendous. And so there will always be a role for hospitals, ICUs, those sorts of things. And I just think, you know, the problem is right now is that it's very difficult to get into any of that market. And so the best you can do is just chip off one or two things. And I think you'll have, you may have these direct primary care practices, they may start consolidating into other things 
practices as well. I mean, I there's no reason to think that they all have to be independent physicians working just for them by the, for themselves. I mean, they could be in larger groups, sort of loosely affiliated, covering call or covering supplies, purchasing, maybe working with uh, various employers to sort of spread out the the risk, the pool for employees. What you know can go to one of six physicians, for instance, in town. I mean, there are there are different ways you can see this sort of working out once it gets bigger. Uh, and I don't think there's any reason to think that it's it has to be the way it is right now. Likewise, the way that pharmacies work, the way that implants work, and the purchasing of all these products is going to continue to change. And I think it's becoming very clear that the price for medical care is approaching the point where people can't pay very much. And it we're not far away. I mean, it was already a problem before. Uh, before the ACA was passed, it's gotten worse since then, and there's no signs that it's changing. And no matter what the government does or the way people reprice things, uh, it's still hugely expensive. I just look at my own family, and it it made sense to us to drop our health insurance and to go to a health sharing organization, which I think has been great on a number of levels. But I think people are starting to make these decisions, and. And I only worry about when the, the economic downturn comes because it will at some point, right? And when it does, how, what are, how are people going to respond if they lose their job and now they've lost their insurance? That's why we need people to, to are seriously you know, looking at these problems and, and recognizing that I think the solutions are out there. I don't think we have to make up stuff that has, doesn't exist. I think a lot of these things are scalable and I think a, a lot of these problems can be addressed through freeing up people to make decisions for their own health, for allowing people who provide that health care to have more options, and to really allow a market, because although everybody values the same thing, to be healthy, how we choose to be healthy and what sort of things we're willing to do is different. And so I think we should allow more options for people and not have it so regimented and strict in that you have to have you know an HMO or HSA or something like that. I think the more options we have... And I think that's something for physicians. They have to, at some point, back off and say, you know, we have to accept the fact that maybe maybe physicians providing all the care and coordinating everything is not the right answer. But we can't uh, hamstring ourselves by insisting on being in charge of everything and then not having the manpower or the ability to do that. And, and especially when people have different options and sort of different ideas of what they want to do. I don't think we have all the answers. I think it's not fair for us to think that we can decide everything, but I think it's also not fair for people to not have the choice as patients either because patients need to know where they're getting their care, who's providing it, and they need to have that honest discussion with someone because it's entirely appropriate, I think, for someone to say, I want to get all my care from someone who has a lot less training because I'm you know, very healthy or whatever, and that's fine, but you can't charge the same price, uh, you know, mandated charge the same price as someone who has... 10 times the training. And it doesn't make any sense. It's, the system is kind of mucked up in that way, and that's why we need to fix things. And that's why I think the more options and more transparency you have the more, and the, the lower regulation you have with for how the people practice is probably a good thing. And uh, it's not always the most popular thing to say within medicine, with the physician ranks, but I think it's, I think it's something you have to accept as, if you want to get to the point where you can have patients do what they want, you have to give up some of the some of the regulatory and, and scope of practice concerns you might have too. Again, not very popular 
But I think as long as it's open and honest about what things are, I think that's a better situation for people than than having it where it's so closed and it really stifles the the ability for anyone to be innovative. Whether in that it includes physicians, because uh, the what you are allowed to do is so much controlled by the boards that are committed to the status quo. And we just need to get away from having all that control being held by just a few people. And I think the only way to really realistically do that is to relinquish a little bit of our control elsewhere, but continue to be advocates for patients, being advocates for the profession, being advocates for safety and quality, and saying, hey, you know, you want to go to a minor league baseball game, that's fine, but you're going to be watching minor league baseball. You want to go to Major League Baseball, you're going to see Major League Baseball, and the, the cost of the ticket's different. The product is different on the field, and so just recognize what it is. And, you know, maybe sometimes you don't want that, and you want something different. But anyway, I think as long as you recognize what it is, I think it's a fairer system, and it's one I think that would be better for everybody. Well, I hope you enjoyed the good things, the bad things for 2019 as we enter the year of the ophthalmologist, 2020. I encourage you to visit the website at theparadox.com. You can sign up for email lists. You get updates. Again, any ideas you might have for the show, feel free to, to send them to me at the Paradox Show, and that's P-R-A-D-O-C-S, at protonmail.com. Please feel free to share with your friends and family and colleagues. I've got some great guests. I'm going to be talking about credentialing, which is actually going to be fairly... Um, it doesn't sound like a very sexy topic, but it's very interesting if you want to understand sort of the nuts and bolts of how hospitals work. I've got a great guest coming up, and we're going to talk about that and many other things in the year to come. So thank you so much. We'll talk again. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.